When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To sign up, we have to take an online training course and pay a $25 registration fee. And then over the 10 days, the hunter who brings back the most pythons wins $2,500. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I will be in the support van. I'll be the support van for you. Oh, yeah, no, my wife's a snake hunter. I'm just in the support van drinking Coors Light all day long. (laughs) Heat index of 110. Yeah. I know. It is in August. Yeah, that sounds like a party happening down there. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other amazing public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Are you planning to get away to the Sunshine State this winter? Visitors flock to Florida for the beaches and the magic of Disney World. But we'd suggest checking out another magical place. Everglades National Park is the largest subtropical wilderness in the United States. A park where you'll feel like you stepped into another world. Today, we'll talk about some of the activities we did on our visit and some things we wish we would have done. And you'll learn about the creatures who inhabit the Everglades, native species, and some unwelcome intruders. All this and more coming up next. Before we get started on the Everglades, we wanted to thank everyone who signed up for our Patreon account. We appreciate all of you so much. We really do. That's really great that people have started signing up for our Patreon account. So if you missed our last episode, we mentioned that our Patreon account is up and running and we have some bonus content already out there for listeners who sign up. And it only costs $5 a month. That's right. It's a bargain. (laughs) And we just uploaded our very first video episode. Uh, It's a happy hour with Matt and Karen featuring the tropical drink painkillers that we discovered in Virgin Islands National Park. Yeah, we had a little trouble filming that, didn't we? (laughs) Well, it took multiple takes. (laughs) And we were sober, just so everyone knows. Uh, But we, after several takes, we got it. But then what we did was we put the bloopers at the end of the video so people could see some of the struggles we had. The drink exploded. Yeah, that was my favorite, the drink that exploded all over you. Um, We had some things in the camera shot that shouldn't have been. (laughs) Yeah, what was, oh, my microphone. The whole first take, the whole first 20-minute first take, my microphone didn't work. It worked perfectly fine right before we started videoing. When we were testing. During the testing, and then it quit working. So now (laughs) the video's out there. We're going to, we would like to do more videos 
and put them those on our Patreon account. Short ones might do happy hours. That's right. I think we're going to do a coffee with Matt and Karen. We're going to where we showcase some of the ways to make coffee when you're out camping, uh, because we kind of have a different opinion of which uh, which way to make coffee. Uh, produces the best tasting coffee. So we'll have a little uh, little competition going on that one. <laughs> you mean different ways for me to make the coffee because you don't, you don't ever make the coffee. You have a difference of opinion of how I should do it. Yes. Just let's be clear on that. <laughs> okay. okay. It's not a competition. It's which way should I do it for you well, that, well, that you like the best? Yeah, we'll have a little taste test of the results of uh, three different ways. So that so that will be riveting, yeah, <laughs> riveting I, content. And I think I might do hiker stew from Phantom Ranch. Yes. Might do that. I, are we? Is it going to be a cooking show? Is that what this is? <laughs> well, you never know. It'll be a lot of uh, a lot of different, fun, shorter things that we can't do on our regular full-length episodes. So, yeah, so join us on our Patreon account. We would love to see you there. Yeah, and if you want to link to that, you can go to the Dear Bob and Sue podcast.com. And there's a link there. You can also just go to patreon.com and search for Matt and Karen Smith. And we'll also have show notes for this episode where we're going to put some links and we'll put a link to that as well. All right, Matt. Karen, are we going to go to the Everglades? How about we go to the Everglades? Okay, let's do it. So we had a question in a recent mailbag episode where a listener asked if there are parks she should visit sooner rather than later, specifically parks that are in danger due to climate change and other factors. And... As it turns out, Everglades is considered the most threatened park in the United States for a variety of reasons, and and we'll talk about some of those later in the episode. Since many of you are planning winter trips to the parks, we thought it would be a good time to do an overview of the Everglades and talk about why it's such an amazing park to visit. Are we planning a winter trip to any sunshine parks? (laughs) I don't know. It depends on... We, we? <laughs> we don't do that. And here in the Pacific Northwest, it's such a beautiful summer. And, and, and then it starts raining about October 1st. And you don't think much of it until about January. And then you realize, like, we got to get out of here. I know. We got to go find the sun. So we've only lived here like 23 years. We should probably know by now that it's going to happen every year. So we probably should plan a trip to a a sunny place? Yeah, I would love to go back to the Everglades. And Florida has three national parks. They have Biscayne and they have Dry Tortugas, which is wonderful. And Matt, we could go down to the Virgin Islands because a lot of people add that park to their Florida park itinerary. We could go back to the Virgin (laughs) Islands. I enjoyed that trip, although we did it probably not a great time of the year. We did it in November and it rained on us, but I think we had one really nice day in the Virgin Islands. Yeah, I remember you planned it during hurricane season because I think the price was cheaper to go then. (laughs) And it worked out just fine. Yeah. Anyway, the Everglades is a very unique and special park, and it's not just our treasure here in the United States. It happens to be an international treasure. It's also a World Heritage Site. It's an international biosphere reserve and... I don't know if you knew this, Matt, it's a wetland of international importance. And those are all capitalized. So that's a thing. Great. I don't know what (laughs) 
any of those mean. But Karen, you know what I do know? What do you know? <laughs> it is home to one of the largest wetlands in the world. Yes. So all in lower lowercase letters there. Mm-hmm. There are nine distinct habitats that have been identified in the park, including pine rocklands, coastal lowlands, and marine waters. But the park is best known for its mangroves and its sawgrass prairies, which of course is called the River of Grass. So you might hear that a lot when you hear about the Everglades. I think that's kind of sexist, don't you think? Calling them mangroves? <laughs> Are they not people groves now or person groves? I, Karen, we're trying to be politically correct yes, here. Yes, a change is probably in the works Man for groves. <laughs> You know, one of the things I love about the Everglades, it's like this anomaly in southern Florida. Um, I think a lot of people who travel to Florida, they're familiar with the coastal beaches and the condos and all those things. But in the center in south Florida is this unique landscape that's not found anywhere on the planet. Yeah, as developed as South Florida is, I really enjoyed seeing some of the wilderness areas inside the park. You know, knowing that the landscape is protected from becoming Del Boca Vista condo building phase one, two, and three, it's it's good to see that there's some wilderness that's being protected. Absolutely. The Everglades is teeming with plant and animal species that aren't found anywhere else on the planet. So it protects a landscape that's an important habitat for numerous rare and endangered species like the manatee, the American crocodile, and the elusive Florida panther, which I was hoping we would see on our visit, but we didn't. <laughs> you got the thesaurus out today. Teeming, elusive, mangroves. <laughs> I can't wait. To, I, I'm trying to use words other than spectacular, spectacular and, and incredible and amazing. Spectacular is my word. Thank okay. you. Okay. Uh, and other than referencing spectacular, I haven't said it once yet on this episode. No, but it's, I'm sure it's coming. It's, it's, it's common. Mm-hmm. Yes. I know when we were planning our trip, when we went to Everglades the first time, you were most excited to see the alligators. I was too. I, I love seeing alligators because uh, we hadn't seen, well, I've seen ones on golf courses before in Florida, but I haven't seen one in the wild. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I didn't realize? What? I did not realize that the Everglades has crocodiles. I know. I didn't even really know the difference between crocodiles. And you know what we found out on that trip? Well, I guess you do because you were with me. (laughs) What what did we find out? We found out that the Everglades is the only place on Earth where alligators and crocodiles coexist. I thought they would eat each other. Apparently not. So when you're in the Everglades, if you're wondering, are you looking at an alligator or are you looking at a crocodile? We're going to we're going to mention some of the differences that will help you identify which one you're looking at. So the American crocodile is bigger. It grows from 10 to 20 feet long and it weighs between 300 and 2000 pounds. While the little American alligator while the American alligator—it's greater. It's greater. It's, it's so—it's greater than a crocodile. It's the American alligator. <laughs> for Bellad, for the rest of the yes. episode, you have to call it an alligator. Good, because I probably will stumble over that. <laughs> it grows eight to eleven feet long and weighs between four hundred and eight hundred pounds, and that, of course, depends on their age and their gender. But the color is different too. Right. Alligators are gray or black and crocodiles range in color from green to brown. 
And also, when you look closely, the snout shapes of the two are different as well. The crocodiles have like a V-shaped snout, and alligators have more of a U-shaped snout. So you're supposed to uh, examine the snouts? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying here? I'm not getting that close to see if... Is that a V or is that a U? (laughs) Well, the thing that might stand out more when you're looking at the snout would be their teeth. That is a surefire way to tell the difference. The alligators have an overbite. So when their mouth is closed, you can't see any teeth. But the crocodile has a pronounced underbite. So when their jaw is closed, you see teeth coming up on the outside. <laughs> oh, so you're not, now you're making fun of them, No, right? no. <laughs> a crocodile has an underbite. Uh, you know how you can actually tell? If, if it's walking away with your leg in its mouth, that's probably a crocodile. <laughs> well, to that point, the crocodiles are more aggressive. And if provoked, they are known to attack. And the alligators in the Everglades tend to be more docile and more calm. Now, granted, they're more docile than a crocodile. So that, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so th- this is great. So for all of you going down to the Everglades, now you know. Right. You know everything there is to know about alligators and crocodiles. <laughs> well, and it's going to depend on where you are in the park as to which one you see, because the crocodiles live in salt water and the alligators live in fresh water. So they're in different areas of the park. And they also have a different life expectancy, don't they? They do. Crocodiles live longer than alligators, uh, almost twice as long. Yeah, they, well, they come from Australia. I mean, Australia, life's easy in Australia, so they live much longer. Less stress down there. Did you just make that up? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's disregard that fact until okay, we they're, fact they're not? check. Okay, fact check that one. Okay. All right. Uh, I do have a pop quiz for you, Matt. (laughs) I know how much you love that. So I'm ready. Okay. The Everglades is the third largest national park in the lower 48. It is uh, about one and a half million acres. Now, Matt, what are the two largest national parks in the lower 48? So we're not, you know, we're not talking about Alaska here. Well, I know that Death Valley is very large. That would be correct. So, so I got one? You got Yes. What is the second one? Hmm. I would either, by landmass? Yes. Land <laughs> uh, I would narrow it down to Big Bend, Yellowstone, or Grand Canyon, because those are pretty big. Final answer? I'm going with Yellowstone. Ding, 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 ding. You are correct. Yellowstone is the second largest park. Everglades and, is the third largest. Yes, that Got is it. correct. Okay. Our listeners are prepared for that trivia quiz if that's, you know, if they're ever on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah, or Jeopardy. That, yeah. All right, let's talk about the best time to go. Why, Matt, would you want to visit in the winter in the dry season, which is December through April? Well, the weather is a lot better in the winter, the dry season. In the wet season from May to November, it's hot and humid. And temperatures can reach average highs of 90 degrees with humidity over 90%. So that 
makes a heat index of 100 degrees. And you can expect afternoon thunderstorms every day. That's right. And with those heavy rainstorms, water levels rise. And as the water levels rise, the animals tend to disappear. So it makes wildlife viewing tough. Also, as the animals disappear, the insects come out, such as uh, mosquitoes and biting flies. So you've got that. Uh, <laughs> you've got so that to look forward to in the wet season. So what about the Skeeters, uh, December through April? You know, I don't remember us having any problem with the mosquitoes. Do you? I know we sprayed DEET, but I, I don't remember it being an issue at all. I think we caught the tail end of the wet season. There was some mosquitoes biting our, our thighs. That's all, <laughs> all, all I'll say about that. <laughs> Uh, one more note, the ranger programs and tours are much more limited during the wet season. So again, um, when you're schedule- scheduling your trip, December through April is ideal. Yeah, and it's also because December through April, maybe not all the way through April, but it's cold and snowy and icy the rest of the country. So that's why you go down to Florida. Exactly. See those uh, American crocodiles and alligators. Yes. Prime- check, check out their snout shape and... <laughs> Whether or not they have protruding underbites. <laughs> so much to do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Karen, if you're going to go, where where would you want to stay if you're going to visit Everglades National Park? Now, we stayed in Homestead. I remember that because Homestead has a NASCAR event, and mm-hmm. I was very excited to see the track there. Uh, we thought Homestead was a great place to to be based. There are lots of hotel choices. I think we stayed in a Hampton Inn maybe when we were there. But the west coast of Florida is not bad either. Uh, my parents lived on Marco Island and Naples, Florida for years and years, and we would visit them. And that's pretty close to other parts of the park. I mean, obviously, the parts of the park that are on the west side. Well, sure. And if you happen to be on the west coast of Florida visiting, um, you could still do a day trip into the Everglades easily. Uh, so let's talk about some of the um, areas inside the Everglades. So there are four main visitor centers. There's the Ernest F. Coe and Shark Valley that are the closest ones to Homestead. Ernest F. Coe Visitor Center is only 11 miles away, and Shark Valley is 38 miles away. So great location if you're based in Homestead. Now, the Gulf Coast Visitor Center, it's, you know, Karen, it's on the Gulf Coast. <laughs> yes, hence the name. <laughs> yeah, it used to be. It was destroyed by Hurricane Irma in September of 2017. Another reason not to necessarily visit Uh, you know, hurricane season is, you know, August, September ish. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a temporary visitor contact station. It's, it's now open and it's, 83 miles from Homestead. Right. Or like you said, if you're staying on the Gulf Coast, it it would be right there. So much more convenient. And now the Flamingo Visitor Center in the very south of the park, it's 49 miles from Homestead. The Visitor Center was destroyed by a hurricane in 2005. Now the um, Visitor Center is being rebuilt bigger and better. There is going to be a restaurant and lodging. And I think it was supposed to open a while ago, and it's been having some delays. So the latest I could find is the opening is to be announced. And I I think, Matt, that they are going to try to have it open by December of this year, 2022, for the big anniversary. It's the big 75th anniversary of the park on December 6th. Yes, this is a big year for them. You know what I feel (laughs) coming on? (laughs) 
Hmm. What would that be, Matt? I can't imagine. I, f- I feel a History Channel <laughs> segment coming on. Well, since you're begging for History Channel, I'll go ahead. <laughs> As we mentioned before about the Everglades being endangered, one of the reasons is because it's been drained for agriculture and urban development. And today, only 50% of the original wetlands remain. And what happened was uh, early colonial settlers and developers found the Everglades to be potential farmland and communities. And by the early 1900s, the drainage process was underway to transform the wetlands into land that was ready to be developed. And so these results were severely damaging to the ecosystem and all the species who lived there. Now, The good news is in 1928, landscape architect Ernest Coe, yes, of the Ernest Coe Visitor Center, uh, he began an effort to designate a national park in South Florida. His persistence paid off when Congress passed legislation in 1934 to establish Everglades National Park. But it took another 13 years to acquire the land and define the boundaries of the new park. Wow, that was fascinating. Thank you for for that History Channel segment. I'm not quite done. So with the support of many early conservationists, scientists, and other advocates, Everglades National Park was established in 1947 to conserve the landscape and prevent further degradation of its land and plants and animals. Unfortunately, further degradation continues to happen due to development in South Florida. And simply put, they have drainage issues. Uh, Levees and canals are blocking the natural flow of water through the Everglades. Yes. All righty. Yes. So, Karen, what did we do when we went? Our first stop was the Ernest F. Coe Visitor Center. Wait, take- wasn't he the guy who really is responsible for getting the Everglades to become a national park? You are actually listening. <laughs> wow, I think that was the first time. I was in the other room. Just- I was sorting through the mail. I, I, I was putting the Costco flyers in the recycle bin, and I heard something about Ernest F. Coe. Yes, and so there is a visitor center named after him. So we stopped there to take care of business. One of the park entrances is right there. You know, we took our photo by the park sign. We stamped our passports, etc. Yeah, and after that, we went a few miles away to the Royal Palm Visitor Center. Uh, and it, this used to be Royal Palm State Park. It was established actually before the National Park. So in 1916, uh, there's an information station and a bookstore there. And there's where we hiked Anhinga and Gumbo Limbo Trails. That's such a mouthful to say that. (laughs) And I thought that maybe you were making those words up when you did the outline. And then I realized that we we actually hiked those trails. And we did. And we wrote about them in Dear Bob and Sue. Uh, So the Anhinga, I hope I'm saying that right, trail is the most popular trail in the park because of its abundance of wildlife. So it's a self-guiding trail. It winds through a sawgrass marsh where you might see alligators and turtles and and hingas, herons, egrets, and lots of other birds, especially during the winter. What about the crocodiles? Alligators are here, and yeah, we the, did see yeah. a lot of alligators. Yeah, did we see any crocodiles? Uh, Do we know? Uh, well, I don't think we knew at that time. Well, at the time, maybe I, they were all crocodiles, <laughs> and we just didn't know. <laughs> that could be. Now, this trail is 
1.8 miles round trip. So it's very short and it is wheelchair accessible. So Matt, can you tell everybody what an anhinga is? Oh, an anhinga? Uh-huh. It's a bird. It's a snake bird. It's sometimes called snake bird, darter, or water turkey. <laughs> and why do they call it a snake bird? There's a specific reason. Yeah, because when it swims through the water, it only has its head up and it looks like a snake getting ready to strike. It does because it has this long skinny neck that kind of curves. And when you see a photo of it, it does look like a snake coming out of the water. It's a little bit freaky. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going anywhere near the water. So like, <laughs> I don't care what's in there. I'm not, I'm not going in the water. Now, the Gumbo Limbo Trail, which is also right there, uh, the access to it, it's even shorter. It's 0.4 miles round trip, self-guiding paved trail. Again, this one is wheelchair accessible, and it takes you through um, this jungle-like hammock of Gumbo Limbo trees and royal palms and ferns and all kinds of other exotic plants. And the only reason we did that hike is because you like the name. Yeah. yeah. You, we got to hike the Gumbo Limbo Trail. Those Gumbo Limbo trees are pretty cool to see. Remember they had that red bark that kind of peels mm -hmm. back on itself? Yeah, they refer to it as the tourist tree because it resembles the skin of sunburnt tourists. <laughs> Yeah, you were one of those sunburnt tourists on that trip when we went down to Virgin Islands National Park. I was. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> we mentioned in the book that I thought the hair on my back would be at least an SPF 15, but it turns out it wasn't, and I got fried. You were burnt. But then we moved on to the Long Pine Trail, and now this one. This one is seven miles through a pine forest. Yes. Kind of more of my liking. No anhingas there? Yeah. No snakes, uh, snake birds there? Right. We didn't do the entire seven miles because we didn't have time for that. We hiked for about an hour and then turned around. Um, apparently, people also bike this trail, and that would be much easier because you could obviously go a lot further. You know, to be honest, I did not love this trail. It's, it's basically a pine forest, so we didn't see any um, birds or animals, nothing exotic on this trail. So in my opinion, I know you liked it, Matt. In my opinion, I think time would be better spent elsewhere. Yeah, I, I liked it. However, I do agree that if you want to hike or walk that distance... The place I really enjoyed was Shark Valley. That was, I think that might have been my favorite spot in the, in the park. That it was mine too. We can definitely agree on that. Shark Valley was amazing. Through Shark Valley, so there's a visitor center, and there's also a 15-mile paved loop. One option is uh, people can take a two-hour narrated tram tour. We saw a lot of tram tours. You got to make those uh, reservations, or at least we recommend you make those reservations ahead of time. Uh, and so that you're on a tram, then they narrate the, what, what you're seeing. But they also rent bikes. So we decided we were going to do the tram the narrated tram tour. But when we got there, we saw crowds of people getting on the tram and we had not made reservations. And so Matt, I remember you looked over and there was a stand where there was a man there and he was renting bikes. And so you said, hey, let's rent bikes and ride through Shark Valley. And at first I wasn't crazy about the idea. No, I went over and talked to the, the, the guy and I asked him about, uh, you know, what, what's the deal with the bikes? And, you know, he says, well, it's 15 miles and 
so I think he was like trying to close the deal. It's like, okay, so you, you're going to rent a bike. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm here with my wife, so I need two. And I kind of, you know, tilted my head over towards you. I think you were uh, fixing your hair in, <laughs> in the uh, reflection of the, the store window there. I walked over to, to chat with the bike rental gentleman and he took one look at me. He looked me up and down and he said, you know, you should take the tram. <laughs> he looked you up and down. He looked you up and down. Did yes. he really? Yes. He made a snap judgment that was not favorable to me. <laughs> and he thought I was someone who should not rent a bike and should take the tram. So what what did we do? <laughs> I knew the minute he said that, that we would be renting bikes <laughs> or walking. Either way, I knew that we were not taking the tram. After he said that. So, no, we we rented bikes. I think I had to actually talk him into it. And I don't know if this has changed, but back then the bikes were um, well used, somewhat wobbly. So just know or or check it out before you actually rent them. These are not e-bikes that you cruise through, you know, the 15-mile trail. These are bikes that you actually pedal yourself. I do remember (laughs) now that you mentioned mine was a little wobbly. Mine was wobbly, too. I had trouble steering. Which is not what you want when you're uh, biking uh, a path through alligators. No, no. We did not expect this. But as we started out, actually on the entire trail, there were alligators everywhere on along the edge of the trail, like half in the grass and half on the trail. But they're docile. <laughs> actually, in, in all seriousness, what you have to watch out for is there was a lot, there were a lot of little ones, like babies. Mm-hmm. And you don't. You don't want to get close to the baby. You don't want to get close to any alligator, no. even though they're docile. No, you don't. And the thing was that kind of scared me at the time, alligators are cold-blooded, which forces them to sometimes regulate their body temperature by sleeping with their mouth open. So all of these alligators along the trail had their jaws open, and you could see these giant Fangs? Would you call them fangs? I don't know if you call them fangs. Giant teeth. Alligator teeth. Yeah. So it was like, is this a welcome? Is this a warning? Uh, Because we didn't know at the time about, you know, their body temperature and that this was normal. It seemed a little um, frightening. Yeah, they looked like the Everglades Welcoming Committee, all lined up in a row with their mouths wide open. And as we're riding along, I was in front of you, and all I remember is you kept yelling, don't get so close to the alligators. One of them's going to take off your leg, and I'll have to pedal it back to the visitor center and put it on ice. Yeah, I'm the one who has to go get the leg. (laughs) Which is so random to say, because then how did you think I was going to get back to the visitor center if I was missing a leg? You can pedal with one leg if you go real fast with your pedals and the pedal comes kind of all the way back up if you have to. Uh, I could barely pedal with two good legs. But it was amazing because not only were there alligators on the trail, but there were all of these exotic birds that were, they almost looked prehistoric. It was like, I was kind of felt like we were in Jurassic Park. Yeah. So there were, there were a lot of exotic birds. I do remember that. Um, And every now and then a tram would come by and all the People would be gawking and pointing at you. I don't know why that was. No, they, they were, were pointing at the animal. Wobbling her bike towards that big alligator. <laughs> 
Now, kind of randomly, along the loop, about halfway, there is um, a 65-foot-tall observation tower. Uh, so we did get off, and we climbed up that, and that had some amazing views of the of the sawgrass prairie. Yeah, you got to walk up to the top. It's kind of a that, that's actually a, a good bit of exercise at halfway through your ride along Shark Valley. So that was good to stretch our legs a little bit there. Yes. So we only had really one day in the Everglades, and that pretty much sums up what we did. But one of my biggest regrets, what I wish we would have done, is seen the park on the water. And there are lots of choices, uh, lots of opportunities to do that. Unfortunately, we didn't do that. We didn't. Uh, We got just a little bit of a taste of what's kind of on the edge of the park. One thing I really wish we would have done is an airboat tour. That's a really popular thing to do. And I think it looks like a ton of fun. But it's it's only available in certain parts of the park. I mean, it's not like these airboats are like going all the way through the park. It's, it's like off that U.S. Highway 41, the Tamiami Trail that's between... Uh, Miami and and the west coast of Florida and and then over by the Shark Valley area. Right. It's very convenient to Shark Valley. Now, airboats have been banned in most areas of the park except for that area. And uh, there are three authorized airboat tour guides. It's listed on the Everglades National Park website. We'll put a link to that on our show notes. So there's a specific area and these airboat tours, they only go for about nine miles. I think that's all they're allowed to. And the tours can last from 30 to 60 minutes. Yeah, that kind of surprised me when when we looked that up. That's that's not very long, but I don't know, maybe that maybe that's enough. Yeah, well, I think that's all that they, they're allowed to do. Okay. You know, they, they can't take people actually through the entire park. But, you know, I was watching a video, and it's so cool how those airboats, they just basically glide on top of the water. Yeah, that would be fun. I yeah. think that, that would be a fun thing if you have kids, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of like a really fun Disney ride. Exactly. That, that you're gliding across the water pretty fast speeds, I think. I think so, too. And that's one thing to know ahead of time, because they are noisy, and they go fast. So if you're a serious wildlife enthusiast or a serious photographer, you might want to do a boat ride that has a focus on wildlife photography. And in in that case, an airboat's probably not the best option. Right. And they have these tours. Uh, there's a 90-minute boat tour that leaves out of the Flamingo Marina and has a Florida certified master naturalist on it so mm-hmm. that they can help you spot the wildlife and, and tell you what you're looking at. Right. I think that would be really interesting to do and completely different from the airboat tours. Slower paced and more informational, more interpretive. Um, also, Matt, I, I don't know if you'd want to do this. I don't know if I would want to do this, but there are also guided canoe and kayak trips available. So you are actually now, <laughs> you're you're on top of the water on your own, paddling on your own. So you can get closer to the alligators and crocodiles <laughs> and, and <laughs> yes. measure the shape of their snouts. Exactly. You can, you and then look at their, see if they have an underbite or an overbite. Yeah, no, I'm staying, it, I am staying on paved surfaces when I'm in the Everglades. No, I'm not getting in the water. So these tours, um, a list of all these tours, like I said, it's available on the National Park website, but there's also the Everglades National Park Institute. They have their own website. They have guided trips available. So 
lots to choose from. Um, it just depends on what you're looking for and what you like to do. And we'll put those links in the show notes of this episode, so uh, or, or some of the links, so that yes. you can follow those and see what's available. Mm-hmm. Now, Matt, here's another thing we could do when we go back. This is for the folks who are looking for a little more adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do something that most people never do by joining a ranger-led hike called slough slogging. Do you pronounce it slough or slough? S-L-O-U-G-H. I pronounce it paved surfaces. That's what I pronounce. <laughs> so they need to get the marketing department on this. Slough slogging uh-huh. or slough. What is it slough slogging or slow slogging or slough slogging? Uh, All gonna, of them are bad. I'm going to call it slough slogging. And this is where you wade waist deep in the Florida swamp. So you're hiking in the swamp. Okay, so slough slogging, <laughs> yes. waist deep, swamp. Okay, yes. these the, <laughs> these are the words that you need to take out of your marketing uh, spiel, okay? <laughs> I do think it would be kind of cool because you get to see this hidden world that you, you're not going to get to see any other way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, the this program, the tour, is limited to 12 people. Uh, you can get more information or you can sign up at the Ernest F. Co. Visitor Center. And this is only for people who are 12 years and older and reservations are required. So come on, Matt, let's... <laughs> How many participants do you think normally come back from the slouse logging? They take 12 out. <laughs> but it, they only have room for like eight on, on the way back. So, and that usually is not a problem. Well, and that leads us into our next segment. And this is probably why we will never be a slough slogging is because <laughs> one of the most serious problems facing the Everglades is an invasive species, which is the giant Burmese python. I think you'd like talking about invasive species as much as you like talking about uh, History Channel stuff. Yes, I yes. do. That would be my second I, thing. Maybe it's maybe there's an invasive species podcast. Yeah, that you, I could you start. <laughs> Spent a lot of time researching the Burmese pythons. Karen, when did they first make their appearance in the Everglades? Well, thanks for asking, Matt. It was in 1979 that they first showed up, and likely because someone released their pet snake into the wild. But the population of these pythons didn't explode until the 1990s and now it's become this nightmare scenario yeah yeah one burmese python is a nightmare scenario to me but like now there's what like a hundred thousand of them yeah the python is one of the largest snakes in the world they can grow up to 20 feet long have you seen pictures of them and the girth i don't know what the girth is but they are massive i i have i haven't researched it as much as you but yeah i can i can feel the excitement from over here. Oh my gosh, when I started looking into this, I probably spent three hours on different websites reading about these pythons. It was so fascinating. I, I can't believe that a movie has not been made about this because it's, it's, a, it's like this fascinating horror story. Yeah, it's pretty weird. What I, what I like, as I see here in the outline, that the park started hiring professional contractors to remove the pythons back in 2017, and they are still doing this now. How do you get to become a professional snake contractor? 
Why, is that something you're interested in? No, I'm interested in why any human would want to do that. I don't know, but but thank goodness there is such a profession because since 2017, they have removed 10,000 pythons from the Everglades. And where they put these pythons. Um, you know, I wasn't going to mention that. I believe they are humanely euthanized. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. And now what the park does is every August, and this is something we could do, Matt, if you're really interested. Every August, there's what's called the Florida Python Challenge, where, where amateur snake hunters gather to try and catch pythons. Uh, this was created by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission back in 2015. So... They put a call out Mm -hmm. to all the amateur snake hunters. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not hunting snakes if you pay me. Uh, No. But Matt, they they do Where are these amateur snake hunters? I don't know, but they do get paid and they do it for the money. So this uh, Florida Python Challenge lasts for 10 days, okay? So to participate- 10 days, you get to go out there for 10 days. Uh So what we would do is- to sign up, we have to take an online training course and pay a $25 registration fee. And then over the 10 days, the hunter who brings back the most pythons wins $2,500. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I will be in the support van. I'll be the support van for you. Oh, yeah. No, my wife's a snake hunter. I'm just in the support van drinking Coors Light all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Heat index of 110. Yeah. I know. It is in August. So, yeah, that sounds like a party happening down there. I would, on my apparel company, Dirtlander.com, which is the company that's sponsoring this episode, I would create special snake hunter shirts for you so people oh, would know your yes. snake hunter. And Oh, my goodness. I, I like it. Now, the reason that, well, there are a lot of reasons why these pythons are destroying the Everglades, but one of the main reasons is because they are eating all the animals. And officials worry that they will destroy entire populations of native species if they're not stopped. In some regions, up to 95% of animal populations have disappeared. So for example, in 2012, they did a study and Populations of raccoons dropped 99.3%, possums dropped 98.9%, and bobcats 87.5% since 1997. And in addition, rabbits and foxes have effectively disappeared. And did you know, Matt, that the pythons are even eating the alligators? 99.3% of raccoons. I want to see what happened to the 0.7% of the raccoons that are left. I mean, are these just like badass raccoons? Well, I don't know, but that was a 2012 study. So that was 10 years ago. I'm guessing they are gone by now. Yeah. Yeah. Because for every sighting of a Burmese python in the Everglades, there could be up to a thousand that we don't see. You know, they don't have any um, predators, and they can produce clutches of up to 100 eggs. Yeah, there's there's nothing good about this story, Karen. I know, it's just, I know. <laughs> so currently, there are thought to be over 100,000 in the state of Florida. And this is all because one kid let their python go in I the know. backyard? Isn't that, isn't that awful? You know, I had an idea. They should look at the number of visitors to the Everglades every year. I mean, that's got to be 
What? Karen, do you know how many visitors there are? Let's see. Yes. In 2019, there were 1.1 million visitors. Oh, okay. So all they have to do is like run a contest. Every 10th person who comes to the park gets to take a Burmese python home with them. (laughs) So you got a group of 10, you guys get a snake. Got a group of 20, (laughs) you guys get two snakes. And like in a year, they would have all the, the pythons gone. I don't know why you have not been hired as a consultant down there because your ideas just continue to be brilliant. Visit the park, get a snake. (laughs) Okay, I have to say one more fascinating thing and then maybe we'll leave the snake topic, but National Park Service biologists are tracking the males during mating season, hoping that they lead them to the female snakes because the female snakes are the ones they really want to catch. Those are the ones who are reproducing, laying all the eggs and and continuing this surge of pythons. So so they have this uh, scout snake program. It's a scout snake program. Yeah, Matt, tell us how the scout snake program works. What do these National Park um, Service biologists do? To track the snakes. Well, they grab a snake. Mm-hmm. And, well, they make sure it's a, a male first because that's what they want. And they attach a tracking device. It's about the size of a AA battery. They, they put the tracking device on the male snake. And then they, they know that those male snakes are going to go look for the females in mating season. And that's how they find the females. The males lead them. Yeah. So Matt, they don't attach it to the outside. They actually take these snakes in for surgery and they implant a radio transmitter just, inside the snake. It's not I a battery use, pack that's tied onto the I outside would use of the duct snake. Tape. I know you would. <laughs> but yeah, if they want to put it on the inside, that's fine. I do think that this is an odd way to do it. I mean, it, it, I, I think it hampers the male snake ability to attract the females. It cramps their style, right? I mean, if you're a male that has like a double A battery on its back. No, it's not fem- on its back. It's inside. Oh, it's inside. <laughs> it's implanted it, via surgery. Yeah, it's still going to bulge. It's still going to bulge. And the females, <laughs> Maybe that's what it's tracking, the females. <laughs> I don't know. I like the idea of visit the park, get a snake. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that your idea isn't going to be picked up by the National Park Service because back in 2012, after years of debate, the federal government finally banned the import of Burmese pythons and seven other giant snakes. So no longer can they come in this country. No longer can they be anybody's pet. So Burmese pythons have a lifespan of about 20 years. What if you had one as a pet before this ban went into effect? I don't. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, Matt. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. I thought you were the Burmese Python expert. Uh, apparently, I still have a few more things to to research on that one. Now, one thing I know we were teasing earlier when we said that maybe you don't want to go on the um, slough slog because of the snakes. But first of all, Burmese pythons are non-venomous, although they can still bite you. But there have been no <laughs> human deaths from Burmese pythons in Florida. So the risk of attack is very low. And the park does say that heat exhaustion, getting lost or spraining an ankle on a trail are much more likely to happen than an encounter with one of the pythons. No human deaths, but unfortunately, as we mentioned before, most of the animal population in the Everglades. So, okay, so 
following up on that, mm-hmm. now that you know, have that good piece of news, how many days would you suggest <laughs> people spend in the Everglades? You know, it's it's going to depend on what you want to do, obviously, and how far you're going to venture into the park. So if you're just going to visit the Ernest F. Coe um, area right there, Shark Valley, and the airboat tour, which is which is close to Shark Valley, you could do all that in one day. But if you're going to go down to the Flamingo area and take a longer boat ride, if you're going to be kayaking and canoeing through the mangroves, then you're going to want two days. So it just, I think it depends on, obviously, like like in any park, it depends on what you want to do. Well, we could do that. We could add that on to when you're down there for the python hunt, your amateur snake hunting thing that you do every year. (laughs) I drive the support van. Then once you're done... Depending on whether or not you win the 2500 bucks. Oh, which I would. Yeah. We'll add a couple of days to just visit the park. Yes. I really want to do an airboat tour and maybe do the slough slog. I don't know. We'll mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. I could drive the support van for those <laughs> as, as well. All right. So check out the Everglades. And I do want to end on a positive note because we have, I think, a lot of negatives about what's going on in the Everglades. There is hope for the future of the Everglades, right? There is hope. Because there's an intergovernmental partnership that's working to restore the Everglades ecosystem. This is called the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Program. Uh, This was implemented back in the year 2000 to restore, protect, and preserve the region's water resources. Now, it was originally estimated that CERP would cost a total of $8.2 billion and take approximately 30 years to complete. However, more recent estimates indicate the plan is going to take about 50 years to implement and will cost an additional billion or two more than originally thought. But they have plans and they are working on them. So that's the good news. That's the good news, right? There, there is definitely hope for the Everglades. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an exciting mailbag episode. It will be exciting, right? <laughs> Definitely. You know, one of the things we'll be talking about is a question we get all the time. What hiking boots do we recommend? And how to find the right hiking boot for your foot, for the season, and for all different types of trails. There's a lot to know about choosing the right hiking boot. And I have a lot to say on this topic. I know you I- do. I'm ready to record right now. <laughs> we can just go right into our answer right now. But, you know, we should just wait. We should wait until the mailbag episode. We should. And we have some other great questions that will be on mailbag as well. So so join us next week. Yeah, I, I can't wait. I can't wait either.